Well, hello there, and thanks for finding us. I'd like to welcome you today to the Recycler Secret Podcast. Regardless if this is your first time or if you've been here since the beginning, it's my pleasure to engage your earballs, not your eyeballs. This podcast is an open and candid interview with an industry professional who specializes in recycling or a subset of materials management. During our time together, I hope to dive deep into the person, their organization, and most importantly, how to duplicate their success, which I broadly call the magic. Ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome today's guest. Hello, folks, and welcome again for joining us here at Recycler Secrets Podcast. Today with me is Andy Gale from Bay Area Recycling for Charities. Andy's company was founded back in 2008, one man, one truck, one revolutionary idea. He's now up to 20 full-time employees, eight trucks, dozens of trailers, doing a lot of cool different recycling efforts across northern Michigan and Michigan in a whole. And we're going to talk with him today about a lot of different topics, but uh, the three big ones are mattress recycling, uh, composting, and zero waste events. So, Andy, pick up from there. Tell us a little bit more about yourself and something we might not know. Sure. Yeah. Like you said, we started 10 years ago, and um, we've, I've always looked at this organization that we created called Bay Area Recycling for Charities as a way to uh, create, first of all, a local community recycling uh, system. And that's what we do. We do curbside recycling. We, like you said, we do some stuff with mattresses and electronics and refrigerators, and we kind of delve into lots of different things. Um, but for me, it was more of a think tank. We, we, it's a nonprofit, so we can have a board. We bring in people from the community that can help us develop ideas. And because it's up in the Bay Area, which is the Traverse City area, you know, that for us, we've got those five counties that we're focusing and, and working on these ideas in that location. Some of these things, you know, they, they become bigger than that, and they expand out beyond that. And so that's okay. Um, but I, I see other uh, for-profit or maybe even other nonprofit businesses coming off of this one Bay Area recycling. Okay. And speaking of that, I mean, years back, you started uh, selling compostable goods as uh, one of your segments. And yeah. so that's kind of a different business portion. That's that necessarily not part of Bay. It's, it's on standalone, is it not? Yeah, but most of the stuff we sell happens all up there in the Traverse City area. So it still fits nicely in, into the into the original uh, nonprofit. And and yeah, so that, that spawned off of us doing a lot of these special events when we first started. One of our first events that we did was the Traverse City Film Festival. And when we did that, we wound up at the end of it washing a lot of little plastic cups and things like that. And I thought, wouldn't it be great if there were things that were all compostable? And sure enough, I mean, at the time, that technology was coming out, you know, with PLA and Bagasse and these other types of fibers that people could uh, make easily compostable into um, into soils. And so that's what we did is we started selling that material. And it was it was great. We started off real small, you know, selling just a few thousand dollars a year and then put a sales rep in front of it. And then uh, it took off by itself. It's by itself. It's, it's a standalone business, but um, it, it actually complements our composting operation that we do it complements our special events and our zero waste events that we do so it, it, it's actually a, a nice little complimentary um, program that, that we'll continue to, to do and I don't ever expect us to be you know competing with the uh, uh, restaurant webstaurant you know supply houses or the big companies and things like that so yeah, fantastic so while we're talking about that uh, take a little second for a self-harmless plug there give us a URL or something that we can find that by yeah so you can go to our website at uh, mybark.org, M-Y-B-A-R-C, and we're a nonprofit, so it's .org. And uh, there's, it's a nice new website that we just had built, and uh, it's pretty easy to see. You can just go to the shop page, and you can see that some of the compostables. We actually work with a supply house that has access, gives us access to hundreds, maybe even a thousand different compostable items, uh, and we sell those things um, all day. But a lot of it we'll we'll do direct. Um, and then the stuff that you see on the website is just your basic picnic material that we call it. You know, it's going to give you a 7-inch round plate and a 9-inch round plate and a 9-ounce squat cup that's good for wine and a 12-ounce beer cup and coffee cups and some stir sticks and some compostable straws. That's a big thing these days as uh, everyone's wanting to get away from the plastic straw. We have a plastic straw, but it's compostable. So how do you, when we talk about compostable straws, how do you... How do you differentiate a compostable plastic straw from a non-compostable plastic straw when you're looking at it? So that's a great question. So when you talk, when you talk about plastics, plastics can be made from two things. They can be made 
from petroleum, which is what a water bottle, those number six or seven plastics that you see, those are all petroleum-based plastics. That number seven plastic, that other plastic, a lot of times that's where the compostables fall into line. And that's a, that's a, that's a um, PLA, it's polylactic acid. And so that is using plant-based materials to make that plastic. So it's just like the way plastic is made from petroleum. It's a very organized series of hydrocarbons. Um, the same thing happens with a PLA. It's, it's a super organized molecule um, that allows you to have that plastic film if it's a, if it's a compostable plastic bag. Um, they use other things in it like uh, talc uh, minerals to make the, the compostable forks and spoons and knives. So they, they have some resistance to the heat. So you can mm -hmm. use it as a soup spoon, but it won't fall apart while you're trying to eat your soup. Um, the question there was, how do you visually tell the difference? So if you're doing an event and someone's coming in with outside straws, how do you tell the visual difference between a compostable straw and a non-compostable straw? That's a great question. I have no idea. Okay, good answer. You know, it's, um, it's going to look like plastic. I can tell you I could... I could break it in my hands. I could tell by breaking it on how it tears apart and shreds. Right. Uh, but other than that, it's going to act in just like a regular straw. So in compostable wear, when you're doing events, it's really about isolating outside materials from coming in then? Yes. Because you're not able to tell the visual difference between the two products. Correct. Most of the events that we do will supply not only the compostables, but it'll be a closed event. So any event that's open to the public, like the Cherry Festival, for instance, where people can bring in their own stuff, those are really hard events to do, to even get close to a zero-waste event. It requires a lot of sorting, a lot of uh, stuff that happens in the background that's going to make that event closer to a zero-waste. The ones that we do, um, you know, it... it it's going to be an event where there's a fence around it generally, and we supplied all of the products inside of it that are being used for food and drink. And so those are pretty easy to do because then we don't have to worry about it. You're um, controlling the atmosphere. Correct. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So you're best known around Michigan in a lot of different circles for your mattress recycling programs. Yeah. Can you walk us down that journey, how you first got into <laughs> it, and what it looks like today? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, mattresses, um, they're made of a cover. That's one thing all mattresses have in common. They have a cover on them. What's inside of them are 10 or 12 different things, uh, depending upon what year they were built or where they were built or, or whatever. And so when I started recycling mattresses, it wasn't really recycling. I started collecting mattresses. And, and I remember I'd bring them home, and I, I, I have a farm up in Cedar, Michigan, and I would put them in my barn. And I, at one point I had 10 mattresses in there, and my wife kind of gave me a raised eyebrow on that one. And about six months later, I had 20 or 30 mattresses in there. And then she's, I think both eyebrows went up. It, you know, right around 30 or 40 mattresses, she started, like, asking me, what are you doing with those mattresses that are in the barn? So, and at that point, we had found a company out in Gaylord, Michigan, called Michigan Mattress Recyclers. And I would wait until I got 30 of them so I could fill a box truck of them, box truck full of them. And I would, I would drive them out to Gaylord and be, try to be as efficient as possible. So get as many as you can into the truck. And we would get him out there, and he would tear them apart. And on one of our trips out there, he had mentioned that he was interested in selling and getting out of the business. He was getting close to that retirement age, and he um, felt like he's, he had done about as much as he could. It was pretty frustrating for him. wasn't making a whole lot of money at it and um, wanted to get out of it. And so he and I sat down and penciled out some different ways of structuring a, a purchase and an acquisition there. And we, we did an acquisition of not only – that business uh, in 2014, but we also bought an electronic waste recycling business the same year and, and then took all th three of the things we were doing, the, the stuff we were doing before, and, and moved everything into one building and uh, kind of reduced our square footage, or I guess if you added up all the square footage of all the places we were leasing at that time, we, we reduced the amount of square footage we had, but uh, increased the uh, efficiencies of it. Right. So you procured a mattress company and, and kind of brought that in-house to what you were doing up in North. How far of a reach do you have with that right now? Yeah, so when we acquired it, I mean, he had some pretty good contracts. Uh, uh, Emmett County was one of them, and uh, Lisa and Lindsay up there were shipping their mattresses there, and, and, and we were one of their, his customers, and, and uh, he had a pretty good grasp on, I'm going to say, the lower, you know, northern part of the lower peninsula. And then today we go all the way to Wisconsin. We've got contracts with several cities in Wisconsin and the Upper Peninsula, you know, um, and down in Grand Rapids. We have a lot of different agreements out there that allow us to bring those mattresses in. So we took it from where he was at, which was about six or eight thousand mattresses a year, 
um, when we acquired that and we brought it up to 20, 25,000. It, it's fluctuating right now between 20 and 25,000 per year. What's the most difficult part of recycling mattresses? So I'm going to say the most difficult part is finding the person to tear them down. I mean, it's not an easy job. It's a, it's, you have to have a lot of strength. Uh, it's a lot of safety equipment that you have to wear while you're doing it. Um, you're using a utility blade. You're basically cutting it and opening it up like a banana and pulling those materials out of it. And the downstream markets are really particular about what kind of contamination they can have. I've, I remember I shipped a whole semi-load of 40,000 pounds of the yellow polyfoam material, and we received a picture a few days later of five staples, metal staples, they're called hog rings, um, that that were found in that foam. And so out of 40,000 pounds, he found about an ounce worth of steel. And uh, and I looked at the email, and it, and it had gone through four or five different tiers of that company about what they should do about this. And we almost lost that. That And there's not a, a lot of downstream markets for this stuff. I mean, so you really have to treat everyone with the very best products, the very cleanest material. You have to be very particular. So that's the hardest parts of it. Finding someone to do the teardown. We always joke that a lot of times these mattresses are covered in Mountain Dew and chocolate, you know. So it's it, it, people spill a lot of food and, and, uh, and drink on it. Um, so anyways, and long story short, it, what happens is, is, you know, it takes a certain person with a certain amount of grit to be able to take those things apart. And one person can do about 25 mattresses to 40 mattresses a day. So you figure, you know, there's a lot of man hours in that thing. Right. It's hard to keep people employed in it. And I know from your model in the past, that's a that's a piecemeal game is how you play that out, correct? That's how you're compensating those employees? We have, yeah. You know, we've kicked it around a couple of different ways, just a straight hourly and increased hourly and, and piecemeal. And now the program that we're on right now is more like a team effort commission on it, a team effort piecemeal. So because it really takes a lot of people and they motivate each other through the day and they're but as soon as you have a mattress torn apart, you've got to bail that material up. So there's a lot of support that has to happen with it. I mean, you're bailing up steel. It's not easy. You're bailing up the foam. It's very springy. You know, the quilt and all these materials go into other products. Obviously, steel and wood, you know, those markets are for those. But um, the quilt and the poly will get ground up, made into carpet padding. So um, so these guys are needing to get this stuff densified so we can ship it to these out-of-state markets. Right. So transportation's a huge challenge in that. Um, you know, you're dealing with, you know, foam-based products, which don't have a lot of weight to them. So once you condense that product down, you're still pretty light in your semi-trailers, I'm sure. So you've got a lot of transportation costs in that, not only getting those mattresses to you, but getting that in-stream product to market. Can you talk to that for a minute? Sure. So a mattress, a semi-trailer of mattresses, um, not broken down, just in their raw form, you can get anywhere from... 100 king size mattresses on a on a semi to 200 twin size mattresses and generally the trailers loads will be mixed it'll have foals twins queens it'll have box springs and mattresses and different thicknesses so an average one has about 150 mattresses on it and uh and so that that trailer weighs somewhere between 10 and 15,000 pounds and then once you get the steel and the wood out of it and you've broken this mattress down and you've bailed it up then you start you start bailing this material into thirty thousand to forty thousand pound loads. So there, it's not terrible, but the more loads, the more weight you can get on a load. Obviously, the more efficient you are, and and the the better, uh, especially when you're shipping out of state. We have to ship some of this material all the way back to the East Coast. So, how many mattress recyclers are there in the United States right now, roughly? You know, it's it's hard to say because there's a lot of little mom and pop places. But I'm going to say from our research, there's about 20 mattress recyclers that are um, organized through the uh, um, Mattress Recyclers Association, the MRA. Um, and so there's there's probably another three times that. I'm going to say there's probably 60 to 80 if you look at all the little mom and pops that are doing different things, some places are just shredding them up and pulling the steel out of it. Some places they're d taking them apart, but they don't have a market for things. And so a lot of that stuff still goes to the landfill. We pride ourselves that we're being able to recycle about 90 to 95% of that mattress. Pretty much the only stuff that, that hits the floor goes into the, into the dumpster. I mean, we do, the, we do, I'll give you an example. We do 500 mattresses a week, which is about 500 cubic yards, and we fill about a four cubic yard dumpster, okay. a Republic dumpster down there at our facility. 
So when you're talking about 20 of these companies nationwide, the impact's not huge yet. And, you know, landfilling a mattress is like landfilling a tire. They tend to rise up in landfills. Landfills don't like large, bulky items like mattresses. Right. So in the companies, the smaller organizations that you've seen where they're not having good downstream markets, are they just pulling the metal and the wood off and dealing with the items that they can and then landfilling the rest of it? I think the 20 that we're talking about are ones that are probably getting most of those materials off to, to market. market. Yeah. Okay. Then the other 60 or so um, recyclers are probably getting the wood and the steel and the bulk of the volume out of it. Right. But then they're still, they're still landfilling the covers and a lot of that foam. So you talked a little bit about e-waste recycling earlier, just to kind of switch topics uh-huh. for a second. And we talk about small people and, and certified and registered people there, you know, as we related to the mattress recycling. And so I want to talk about that as it relates to recycling. You know, there are uh, a lot of people who claim to be electronics recyclers that aren't registered, um, you know, small mom and pop kind of operations that are going after it for, you know, core benefit of metal. And they're using that scrap value to kind of support it. They're not doing the right things with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's organizations like yourself that are doing some disassembly and, you know, are going down the registered path and making sense of it. Talk to me about what the, the e-waste market has meant to you guys. Well, first of all, it's one of the most complicated markets out there. I mean, the algorithm of trying to figure out how far to tear something down before you, you're putting more labor into it than what it's worth and the the markets fluctuate, uh, you know, daily, on on these products and these materials that you're pulling out of it. So, you know, what we do is we've got one or two people that go in there and take towers apart. We're we're by far not a large electronic waste recycler. Um, we collect, and when we were taking TVs apart, we were one of the larger ones in Michigan for actually dismantling television sets, which I loved because it was just an easy thing to do. Um, TVs come apart pretty easily. Well, pretty quick, yep. Yeah, and so for the, for the efforts that we put into it, um, you know, we just grow really slowly and systematically with that. You know, we try not to overdo uh, it with the inbound material. So we do somewhere between 750,000 pounds to a million pounds a year, which is quite a bit. I mean, you break that down to semi-loads and you're, you're, you're talking about some serious amount of, of weight coming in and out. Um, it's a lot of labor to take it apart. And, uh, and yeah, the DEQ, um, you can be registered with those folks and, and, uh, and take all your data. And so we still do that. We provide the data of what we take, take out. But we also work with some different... Um, markets with the OEM funding mechanisms, and we're trying to like still feel our way through developing that program. So you said that uh, you know you guys used to do a lot of televisions. That slowed down. I mean, the, there used to be grants and some uh, extended producer responsibility funds that came along with television. That's kind of eroded here in the state of Michigan, at least. Yeah. So what are you guys doing now? Are you still in the television game? We are. However, what what they don't want is just the raw tubes anymore. They want the whole unit so we can participate in the OEM funding mechanism that's okay. set up here in the state. And uh, there's some really great uh, companies, some of them even from the back on the East Coast, that have these relationships. This OEM thing, I've, I've always tried to figure this thing out. It, 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 you can't get too close to the manufacturers um, without already knowing the manufacturers. It's a pretty small list of people that they work with. And that's okay. I get that. But... We're just trying to draw out of these manufacturers here in Michigan a little bit more every year so we can grow sustainable markets because, obviously, there's a lot of handling that happens with mattresses and with TV sets and things of that nature. And you just need to have that support from the manufacturers in order to make it break even. So otherwise, this stuff is all going to be just bound for the landfill. So. Talk a minute about your safety protocols. I mean, when you're talking, you know, there's a, a ton of handling, and whenever you have a ton of handling, you have the, a ton of opportunity for injury. You know, with your team, what are you doing to make sure that they're kind of toeing the line on a day-to-day basis? As far as safety goes, so it's it's difficult. I mean, TVs are heavy. Uh, there's, you know, back sprains and dropping things on your feet and, and uh, lots of places where things can go wrong so we don't you know there's you can wrap and stack these things and and that's a 
dicey job right there having two people or one person start you know stacking and balancing these things on top of each other so we we utilize a lot of gaylord boxes um and we try not to like do a whole lot of wrapping and stacking that's one of our safety things is that we will just stuff these gaylord boxes up with uh television sets and um and get them shipped out that way so unfortunately we don't have heavy loads on those either i mean we'll we'll hit 12 15 maybe 20,000 pound loads when we're wrapping and stacking, you know, you're at 25 or 30,000 pounds and, and greater sometimes. Um, but one thing to point out on the television set side of things is that those CRTs are getting less and less. And there's more and more of the rear projections that are coming in. Even the flat screens are starting to come in more and more um, as their, you know, life has uh, reached the end of those things. But... Um, the rear projections are the ones, and, and it's really hard. I'd like to get back into taking those things apart just because, you know, there's stuff that has to go to the landfill. Oh, a lot of girth, the, tons of girth in it. Yeah. yeah, and there's not a lot of weight. There's some really interesting components inside there. The Fresnel lens, you know, you've, you've got the the magnifiers and the lights inside there. Um, you have a low-grade motherboard. You've got some degaussing wire still inside those things. But pretty much the, the nicest thing about taking a large component like a flat screen, not a flat screen, but a rear projection apart, is just that you can ship a lot less. You know, if, if you're spending a lot of money shipping, you know, 500 miles or 400 miles away uh, for someone to basically take that thing apart, you can save yourself a lot of freight miles and fuel if you... If you uh, can do it yourself. Break it apart, yeah. yeah. So when we talk about e-waste, you know, how do we get the last of that stuff out of people's basements? I mean, data security has always been a big holdback for a lot of people. They're holding on to old laptops or old phones. How do we educate our folks to get that material out the house? That's a great question. You know, um, I think they want it out of their house as much as we want them to get it out of their house. And so it's a matter of letting them know where to take it and providing them something that is cost effective for them to do it. So there's two or three different things that will make them want to keep it in there. You mentioned one of them already. A few minutes ago, you said data security. So one thing you can do is educate people on how to crack that hard drive on that thing. And so a lot of people will take that hard drive out of there and they'll, uh, all you got to do is bend that, that disk inside there so it can't spin. So a lot of people will put it in a vise. And just crank on it until it until it bends a little bit. It'll hold its memory there. Um, drilling a hole will do it, but you only really lose the memory of the area of that hole on that disc. If it, the disc can still spin, somebody with you know ill Experience, intentions yeah. Yeah, can get that information off of that. So crack it, bend it, however you want to do it. That's one thing you can do, and then you've got something that you can dispose of properly. It's got lots of bad chemicals in it, so don't throw it in the trash. You don't want that in the bottom of your local landfill because it's going to be producing a lot of heavy metals and, and leaching out a lot of different things. So that's one thing. Number two, you know, provide them drop-offs. Everyone's just looking for convenience, and sometimes the counties have one where you have to sign up for it. And you see a lot of retired folks go to those and um, because they've got the time, but a lot of people don't have the time, whether it's a Tuesday afternoon at 3 o'clock or a Saturday afternoon. Everyone's busy. So local drop-offs that are permanent drop-offs, you know, where, where people can bring things in. Like our, our facility um, is Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. They can drop things off to us. I would like to open up on Saturday. I think there's another layer of convenience of having it open on Saturday mornings because we get a lot of phone calls on Saturday. So the second thing would be convenience. And then the third thing, I think, would just be to um, inspire them to, to do so. They want to get that stuff out of there. And so we often will have, like, next week Friday after Black Friday every year, we do Green Friday. It's half off of all of our drop-off costs right. for handling. So in, in cost is a, a big factor when it comes to e-waste. I mean, televisions at one point in time were the notorious word that revolves around recycling of free, which nothing's really free in this world. We all know that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they were funded through outside sources, and then that funding has kind of gone away. And so there's some cost to it. And, and as that cost has changed, it, it's really revolved around most electronics now bear some sort of user fee cost to it. Yeah. And, you know, that seems to be, in my experience, one of the biggest holdbacks. Someone calls you up and says, hey, I want to get rid of a television. You go, yeah, sure, not a problem. 35 bucks. They go, no way. Right. 
I'm going to throw it in the landfill or I'm going to dump it on the side of the road. And, you know, they extend that problem to somebody else. And, you know, there is that level of, of education around what does that television look like when you put it into a different source. Um, you know, and then there's that level of, you know, rules and ordinances and, you know, state law mandates that tell people where they can and can't put things. You know, Michigan is uh, a little laxed at this point. You can put a lot of stuff in the landfill. Right. Um, you know, it, I don't know what the next step is. And so maybe you have an idea on how do we get people to understand that that fee is part of being in the life cycle of a product versus looking at it as a burden? Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of products that they people buy today already have a fee built into it. And that goes to the manufacturers, and then that's the money that the manufacturers are supposed to utilize to, to get things recycled. And it all works until you try to get it from the manufacturers to, to getting it recycled. That's, that's where it, it sort of loses it. You know, I definitely am a believer that um, there's got to be some policy, you know, at the state level, at the local level, at the landfill level, of what should and should not or what shall and shall not go into a landfill, whether it's a mattress or electronic waste. Um, and so there's there's definitely some policy, but it's got to be a blend of lots of different things. You know, you, you, you've got to have the, the policies in place. You've got to have the mechanisms for the waste haulers, for folks like me and you, um, to do to go out there and, and take care of this material. And um, there's got to be a policy out there for uh, the folks at the at the local municipality level, and not policy, I, I should say, it'd be a policy of the municipalities to have these collection dates and and to offer these convenient places for these folks to drop this electronics off. Right. So as we kind of go down the road, your organization also tackles refrigerations, dehumidifiers, things of that nature, freon-based appliances. Yep. So in order to do that properly, you have to be certified to pump out Freon. Right. And, you know, there is some metal value on, on the backside. We tend to see a, a lot of people across the country uh, have gone to their power companies are offering some sort of a rebate to get older appliances off the grid. Right. And so there's that channel. Uh-huh. Um, you know, some municipalities still have appliance take back programs. So there's that channel. Most of the big box stores today, you can call a Lowe's or a Home Depot or a Menards and, you know, pay a fee to bring a a refrigerator back to that channel. So you're still in that that home service channel, though, right? You're still going to the house, taking it out of the garage, dealing with it for them. Are you doing only drop off on refrigerators? No. So people have a lot of choices with us. Number one, they can always drop it off if they've got the wherewithal to get a, a large, bulky. We do a lot of dehumidifiers with drop offs, so Freon units. We'll talk about Freon units here. When it comes to the larger refrigerators locally in Traverse City and within the five counties, we do offer that uh, pickup service. We'll, we'll even go into your basement and take a door off you know, its hinge and, and as nicely as we, you'll sign a waiver saying that we, we're not responsible for anything we damage. We're not professional movers, but. Um, but we'll get it out of your house, and 99.9% of the time it goes without any problems, and so we'll help with that. But we also are one of the local um, companies that picks up for the for the utility companies. Okay. And that's something that a lot of people don't know is that you know the utility companies, every time you pay your bill to your power company, uh, a small amount of that, dollar let's say, goes towards a, um, a fund for them to get those units off of their grid, the older units that are using more electricity. I remember when I moved into the house up in Cedar, every time my refrigerator went on, it was an old refrigerator from the 1970s, literally the lights would dim in the house because that <laughs> that generator um, or compressor that was on that thing took so much energy. And so we called over to our power company, and they, they actually gave us a, a rebate of $50, and then they called a company to come pick it up. And I remember doing this, and... Uh, just to see how the experience went, and somebody came over and picked up our our refrigerator. Now we're the company that does that. So we go through the summer, we pick up about 2,000 refrigerators through all of northern Michigan. We go from Traverse City down to, uh, let's say, Lake County and all the way up to the tip of the Met. So that's our territory. We do Great Lakes Energy and um, a lot of smaller uh, power companies like Cherryland Electric, and uh, we do 
um, Traverse City Light and Power and a bunch of little utilities that are up around Charlevoix, Petoskey, and Alpena. So we do those pickups, and I think it's great because now the customer has an incentive, right? Mm-hmm. They get they get a rebate, and we get to get paid for it, and we don't have to try to negotiate with a customer who who may or may not want to off you know pay us to pick up that refrigerator, and so it's a win win. I, I think that that's. And it's interesting that that's a really dialed-in, organized system that is happening with refrigeration units, but it's not that same system when it comes to television sets. Right. Or it's not the same system when it comes to computers or uh, your electronic waste. So there or are mattresses. Yeah, there are some curbside programs across the nation to do e-waste, and you know they have their own challenges. Um, you know, personally, I don't see me setting a, an old iPhone or old laptop by my door in a specially colored bag for jimmy the e-waste guy to come by and pick up for me that would give me some anxiety fits personally (laughs) um but i mean there are those programs and in you know a lot of e-waste is you know described as anything with a cord so when you start talking about toasters and hair dryers and you know other products you can do that relatively easy through that kind of program so I, i think there's some value there but you're right i mean logistically that's a challenge you know it's you go back to the Salvation Army uh, food drive that they hang on their mailbox once a year. You know, it's that same kind of concept. Now you're putting someone to drive down a road to look for this special colored bag. Right. You know, and and you don't have any guarantee if there's going to be two or 2,000 in a given community. So it's crapshoot. Yeah. Uh, Logistically, it's hard to fund that kind of a program. Yeah. So, but I think, like you said, ultimately at the end of the day, there's got to be convenience for that resident to, to get that material for you. How much industrial recycling do you guys do when it comes to e-waste? Are you doing a lot of different organizations as well? We do. You know, I'm going to say it probably makes up about 50% of our electronic waste flow is that we take care of, I think, five different landfills right now. And so people would normally go to their landfill with their refuse and... Now the landfill diverts that electronic waste, puts it in Gaylords for us. We provide them with a semi-trailer. This came off of a DEQ grant that we got. We bought some semi-trailers and a semi-truck with that money, and we created a sort of a hub-and-spoke. Um, Traverse City for us is the hub, and the spokes go all the way up to Escanaba, we, you know, and all the way down into uh, Alpena, and um, all the way down into Grand Rapids. And there's landfills uh, that we have that put that material together and we provide them a semi-truck. They fill it up. We pick that semi-truck up, you know, on a weekly basis and swap it out for them. And it's got mattresses and electronics and television sets and refrigerators and all that stuff on there. So our programs works pretty well with that. Now there's a lot of places where some of the places have a good uh, white recycler. So the, all the white products that they have, the refrigerators and washers and dryers, they can, they can take care of. But you mentioned something earlier about the Freon and the discharging. And, and yeah, that's that's the most important part of doing that because there's lots of really bad chemicals in that in that refrigeration process right. and, um, and in that Freon. And so we actually contract that part out. We did it ourselves for a while. And uh, when we were doing enough of those things, but it, it was it was hard to manage that with the equipment because mm-hmm. your equipment breaks down for three days and then you're behind. Let's see, three days would be about 75 refrigerators, you know, stacked up on your floor. So it's, uh, we started um, contracting out with Padnos on that. Right. So when you look at that, you know, that refrigeration market, you know, you've got this hub and spoke model that's in place. That's not only taking care of that refrigeration side, but you're also bundling it with mattresses and other products. Yeah. And so, you know, that, you know, gives you kind of that trifecta. And you're catching people where they're at a landfill is the example you gave. So in those facilities, are they giving them the, the cost scenario? Like, oh, yeah, you can put that in the landfill and it costs you 45 bucks, or we can put it in that recycle trailer and it costs you 35 bucks. Are they giving them that kind of a, a cost comparison or how does that work? I think some of them do, I, I think. But I think a lot of them, they just say, you know, a TV's 20 bucks. And, right. And that's, that's where it is. goes. Yeah, whether it goes, and that's up to them to put it in the landfill or, or put it into the, uh, it now belongs to the landfill. Okay. So um, I encourage that, you know, to give them a, a bit of a break. I think if you just charge one price and just, they know it's getting recycled. Everyone wants to recycle it. Right. I don't, I don't think there's a lot of people that come through the gate that are demanding that it goes into the landfill. You know? Right. 
Oh, here I am. Throw this in that yeah. hole. Yeah. yeah. Uh, hurry up. Demand, quick. Quick. I demand us to do something ungreen. Yes. Quick. Do it. <laughs> do it before anyone notices. So, you know, kind of shift pages here one more time. You guys have uh, really spent a lot of time in the last four or five years getting into zero waste events. Uh-huh. And, you know, that's its own specialty all by itself. And, you know, I've done a bunch of event work as well. And, you know, events, you know, on a small scale can be two meetings and a couple hours of work. And on a large scale can be six months meetings and, you know, 175 hours of work. So it's, you know, there's all kinds of different layers and complexity. But let's talk a little bit about what are you feeling and challenges right now when you're putting on event work? Challenges on the event work. So you're right. There are meetings getting into it. Um, for the first year, the second year, once the, the person having the event, um, understands what you're doing and you understand what they're doing, uh, then the second year it's less meetings and better recycling. And then the next year after that, maybe less meetings and better recycling. So the challenges for us on these special events, um, you know, are really just, there's a, a lot of different products that are showing up all at the same time and like we talked about earlier there's these closed events that you've got control over and then there's the open events that uh, reduces the control and so you know you just need the right number of bins you need that the the right I mean you might do an event that needs uh, 20 recycling stations but not because it's got 2,000 people at it might only have 500 people at it but it's spread across a large area so so there's logistics that happen inside there Um, once once we get all that stuff sorted out you know and or not sorted out but into our trailers and off-site i think the biggest challenge comes from sorting out that compostable stuff even though you've got a good sign and some education on what to, goes in the compost bin the people that at a special event are not there to learn about recycling per se unless it's a recycling event right but if they're at a, a beer festival or a wine festival or a food festival or a music festival they're there to enjoy themselves. And I found myself doing the same thing. I, I, I've walked up myself to a compost bin and dropped a, you know, a number one water bottle right into the compost bin and had to dive after it to, to go get it out. And it's because my mind is not in that. And I get that. And that's fine because those, that's what those people are there for. Um, you know, there's got to be some sorting on the, on the end of the, the waste hauler here to get it so it, it can you know, be recycled or composted. And for the most part, the recycling stream, it can have a little bit of contamination in it, and, it, and it comes out in the wash. Um, but when it comes to the composting, you really want to get it as clean as possible before it, it goes through its reactions in microorganisms. But if you don't, you catch it again when you screen it. Right. But the, the less plastic, glass, and metal that you have in your finished humus material when you go to sell it, the better. Because even if you're got all, most all of it out of it except for the little rings on, from the milk jugs, you know, and that's in there, it doesn't make your compost uh, sell any better right. by having that stuff in Less it. desirable, yeah. Yeah. So in, in event recycling, the volunteers are the key, right? And we had Roger Cargill on here a, a little while ago from Shoe Pan, and, and he talked about, you know, a T-shirt and a pizza doesn't do it anymore. How are you motivating your volunteer squads? So yeah, we're a nonprofit, and so we have access to volunteers. They, they'd be volunteering for a 501c3, and I'm going to tell you, when it comes to recycling at events, we don't use volunteers. Okay. Yep. So I prefer to pay somebody. So then I can tell them where to be, when to be, how to be, and make them do exactly what I want to do um, and, get, and get the job done. So we don't use a whole lot of volunteers. When we do a beer festival where we're actually, because we're a 501c3, we, we might pull a liquor license, and then we have people pouring beer or wine for us. That's where we use the volunteers. If, if someone wants to come in and help us, we're happy to do it, but they're going to have a support person there. Um, right. So there's definitely we definitely use the volunteers, and, and that does make it for a better event. But a volunteer, I mean, you can have, I'll go do an event with 2,500 people and take care of it myself for six hours. Um, you know, it, it's not that much work to go around and check the bins and pull the bags and throw them in a trailer and get it, get it ready for moving off site. Right. So, um, but there's other events where you might only have 2000 people at it and it's a lot of, you know, it's intense with its food and its waste stream. So if it has an intense waste stream, yeah, we'll have a team of people there 
and then we'll reach out to volunteers. We, we want to do that more, but in the past, it's just, it's easier to just have someone that is on the clock right? and it's a job and you're making them, you know, it's not a glamorous job, but you know, but we get the job done. So, and you know, that's the, the same message that Roger shared that, you, you know, you got to pay people. If you want to see results at the end, you know, Betty, the volunteer is only going to make it so long. And, you know, one of the things that Roger said that, I, that really stuck out with me in that interview was the moment you start ripping open bags of trash, volunteers don't cut it anymore. Right. That's, that's got to be someone that's got some passion behind them. And it's got to be someone that's got some money coming to them at the end of the day to make them want to continue doing the job. Because, yeah. you know, that's that's great and dandy. And they all show up happy and oh, I'm here to help. And, yeah. OK, yeah, you're going to take that plastic cup out of that big pile of food. Oh, what? Right. And those trinkets, you know, those things do go a long way. A T-shirt and a, you know, and a, and a ticket to the event or whatever it is that you do. But a volunteer, you know, the folks that, that do volunteer with us, they're there to volunteer, and they're happy with just a thank you. They understand what you're doing. They want to be part of your mission, and uh, and they they jump in there and get their hands dirty. So I love every volunteer that we have that comes and helps us. Um, it's just that I don't want to put that kind of burden on someone. I think we'd have less and less volunteers. So we always make the volunteer jobs a little bit more fun. So, so they're uh, they're coming back and doing it again. Absolutely. So, talk a minute of the difference between a zero waste event and a zero landfill event. So, I think it's just in perspective. I mean, you can call it a zero waste event, um, and but lately we've been starting to call it a zero landfill event because waste has a really um, abstract meaning to a lot of different people you know uh but when you say landfill it sort of draws the picture in your mind of that pile of material and so you know do you want this material to go to the landfill or do you want this material to not go to the landfill so we call recycling waste you know it's a you know when we look at recycling it's still considered waste yep it's an msw yep it's an msw so um so i think it's just a change in the words now with that being said you never actually really hit a zero waste event or a zero landfill event. I mean, it's really difficult. We've done it a couple of times where we've probably gotten it up into the upper 90s, like 95 to 98%. But there's, I don't care who you're, you're recycling with. I don't know anyone's recycling dirty diapers or chewing gum or cigarette butts, you know? So there, there's things that are going to have to go to the landfill. So a really good event for us is like, maybe we'll do a, a, a wine festival up in Leland and um, that Leland does the Leland Wine and Food Festival. And we will fill two 10-yard trailers up with all the compostables, one trailer up with wine bottles. So we got 30 cubic yards of waste going out of there, of recycling going out of there. See, I just said it. And, um, and there's one bag of garbage that we throw into the dumpster on site of all the other stuff that we pick through. Right. And so that's, that's a really successful zero-waste event for us. Right. Um, so zero-waste is the goal. It's not what you may achieve. And I found the best events, you know, they, they're not going to use, they're going to use real china, they're going to use real silverware, they're going to use real napkins. And those are the ones that get the closest. So the right. ones that we've done where we've... Where you get durables. We get durables, well, yep. So those are the ones that get the closest. So if you can re- use products that are reusable, then that's always better. Right. And, you know, that's a challenge when you look at the marketing side of event recycling. There's lots of people that claim to be, you know, zero waste events and... and you know, there's some of us in the industry when we look at it and we go, you know, great attempt, but there's always something. What do you, you know, you're not, you know, you can say I'm a 99.9% waste-free event, but I mean, zero waste to, to me, when you say zero waste events comes around to marketing a lot of times. People like to yeah. use that term. Um, you know, we had Bill Gurn from Hayworth on this a while back and Bill Gurn's favorite phrase is, oh, you want to be landfill free? Not a problem. Give me 10 minutes and $10,000. I'll make you landfill free. You know, just give me more budget money in your waste disposal side, and I'll send it to an incinerator. Done. Right, yeah. I can make you a zero landfill event real easy. It just, we just have to find the closest incinerator, and we just have further trucking. Right. Um, and it doesn't require any additional effort from your people. We can just put it all in the same bin, and we'll just get it somewhere. Right. But that's not necessarily the goal. I mean, the goal in, you know, zero waste events is really about diversion, right? It's about materials management and diversion. How do we get those things that don't belong where they don't belong somewhere else? Yeah. And I think that that's, you know, it, it continues to grow. And I'm interested to hear what the next evolution of zero waste events are because there's, you know, it originally started with we're going to be landfill free events and then it became zero waste events. And, 
You know, now we're moving I think towards it just this. flows off the tongue better, the zero yeah. waste part, you know? And, and yeah, I, and I think even on our website, if it's not on there right now in the new one, it, it should be and needs to be. I'll check on it. But, I mean, that's the goal is to try to divert as much as we can from going to the landfill. So, right. But, you know, a lot of stuff shows up in our recycling bin there, too, that's not going to get recycled. I mean, you, go, you send anything that's going to be recycled over to uh, MRF, you know, material recovering facility, and it's going to go through its its uh, screens, and it's going to have its fines come out, yep. and there's going to be stuff that's going to fall through. The bottle caps are going to fall through, maybe, yep. um, and maybe not get captured, and the straws and the little plastic bags and the little things of, uh, you know, a lot of you know, food vendors wrap all their stuff in uh, in saran wrap when it goes there. That's PVC. That's polyvinyl chloride, and so that right. stuff's not recyclable because of the chlorine atom in it and so there's a lot of things you know you, so you might get like 90 95 percent is a really good zero waste event to us right you know um but I, I do hate it as much as anybody else that when people just use it to greenwash something and make it sound like hey we're doing a great job over here but people also take it you know the the, the people that are there they'll walk away and they'll say wow this is amazing it's a zero waste event nothing went to the landfill right and i always have to correct them so Maybe there is a better way to call it. I mean, we, we kicked it around in our marketing department. Do we want to call it a almost 100%? You know, <laughs> Got to kind of sort of be close to yeah. where we're going to be, folks. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that doesn't ring as well. Almost a zero waste event? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Come up with a I guess tag I'm, it. I guess I'm guilty of it, of it too, yeah. just for the sake of making... Ease and convenience. Yeah. But people should know that it's, it's the goal. Right. And not the actual so in those events signage is key right yeah so what does what does your sign look like i'm just kidding you can't <laughs> see folks can you no um you know signage is key and, and i joke and when you talk about recycling drop-off sites a lot of times is you know you can tape a hundred dollar bill to the back of a recycling drop-off sign it'll be there a week later because people don't look at the signs right but how do you motivate with signage you know so we just had some new signs made for our our events, and uh, they about this big. Yeah, they're they're this wide and they're this tall, so people at home can see what I'm talking about. <laughs> that was our joke. We probably should preface this. We should probably preface it just a smidgen. Yeah, that that you and I were joking about not you know using your fingers using descriptive words on the radio. Yeah. yeah. So here it's this big. It's that tall. Wow, look how big his <laughs> eyes are over that. It's crazy. Yeah. Can you believe what that looks like? So, you know, um, it's just. For us, it's it's making it really simple. The, the blue with the recycling, the green with the composting, the black with with the um, waste stream, and so trying to just like educate them in a way as they go into it. I mean, you could do it where you could have a volunteer standing at every bin that's out there, you know, and directing somebody. If somebody wants to do that for eight hours, you know, in the hot sun, well. Everyone else is having fun. You're standing there telling people to put their plastic bag into this bin and not that bin. You know, we've always found it just easier to let them have their fun. You know, you don't waste the volunteers' time with, you know, standing next to a garbage can. Have them do something a bit more productive. And you catch it on uh, on post, you know, right. after the event. You, catch, you, you get your systems and you get things sorted out and do the best you can. Right. Yeah, and, you know, and there's a bazillion different ways to do it. Uh, you know, I've seen events where, you know, their sole capture is looking for, you know, getting to, you know, the aluminum or the glass. And that's their big capture event because of the deposit laws. Mm-hmm. And they'll, yep. you know, I've seen that where they use chain link fence with a, you know, a fiber screen underneath it. So they just dump the trash can at the top of the chain link fence and it all kind of rolls down. And then they pick the screen up and dump that into the trash and they, you know, pull the cans off that way. And, huh. you know, it makes it so they don't have to touch the trash. So, I mean, there's a lot of different people doing a lot of different unique ways of sorting when it comes to what's going on out in the world. Right. Um, you is know, there a perfect way? Is there a perfect system, you think? You know, I haven't found it yet. Um, yeah. I don't know if anything's perfect. Um, you know, I think it's our industry is really a lot about ingenuity, right? It's about using the resources that are available to you to accomplish what you can without having to spend tons of money. Right. And, yeah, you can build a $8 million MRF. But if you don't have the inbound material to support it, you shouldn't. You know, you should use a little ingenuity and you should build yourself a $3,000 materials processing center. And the same thing with an event. You know, if you're going to go to an event and the goal is to really capture the metal and the glass, 
well, then don't spend the much time on all the containers. Spend a little more time on processing volunteers and try to figure out how to make that clean for them yeah. to where they're not dealing with the yuck factor. The yuck factor is falling through. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, there's, there's a bazillion different ways to do it, right? There's a thousand ways to skin a cat, as they say. Yeah. So. Yeah, you can't really beat that hands-on, you know, optical, you know, with a person's eyes. Oh, absolutely. Pulling, pulling stuff out. When we did the Cherry Festival for a few years in a row there, um, we had gotten that thing up to about 90%. And it was really hard to get it up there. I mean, you were, we were composting a lot of stuff. There was some junk going in our compost, you know, a lot of tinfoil and stuff, which comes out you know, in the screening process. But, um, yeah, it's a, it's a challenge. Um, I like the idea with the fence. I, I'd never thought of using that, uh, like a chain link as a screen to get some of the, the fines out, yep. you know. So you use the mesh tarp like you'd use on the back of a roll-off, that style tarp, yeah, where yeah. it breeze through it. Yep. You lay that on the ground so the liquids go through it into the ground. Oh, smart. And so then you're losing that liquid content as well. You kill the grass, but, you know, Hey, I don't own the grass. So yeah, we did one event. I remember one year I said, either when I come back here next year, either this grass is going to be green and beautiful, like it's got so many nutri- nutrients, or it was going to be dead. It was dead. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I think all that Coca Cola that went into the uh, into the grass there probably all that citric made a, acid a brown field. Yep. You know, it's now a brownfield site. <laughs> yeah, you know that's why we use fairgrounds. <laughs> they got right. all kinds of stuff around them. <laughs> so you know, wrapping up here, Andy, tell me. Tell me what's looking your future. I know you guys have been playing with some different products. Uh, pyrathesis is one of them. Pyralysis, yeah. Pyralysis. Yep. Um, and, you know, some other things. So so what's your future look like at, at Mark? So that's a great question. So the, the, the concept, I mean, ever since I started this organization and I was out there with uh, watching the guy from Waste Management take the stuff I sorted out as recycling and put it into the back of the garbage truck. And then me walking out to see him in the street and saying, I don't mean to be that guy, but I'm going to be that guy. Why are, you know, I sorted out these number threes and fours and five plastics. Why, why are they not going into the recycling container? And so even 10 years ago, my goal when starting this organization was to try to figure out a solution for this three through seven plastic. Paper markets, not bad, right? They're pretty good yep. for the most part. I mean, mixed plastic or mixed paper's having a bit of a tough run these past few months. But um, metal market, you never you never have to worry about that. I mean, yeah, the prices will go up and down. You have to deal with tariffs here and there. But um, uh, everything's getting recycled when it comes to the metal markets, you know. Um, glass, our oldest container that we use for, uh, you know, the past 10,000 years, if you include the clay pot, it's really interesting to me that that doesn't have a very good market, you know. But I get it. It's it, We're not close to where the manufacturing of this glass is happening. I would like to see some innovation happen there. I'd like to see people start to turn that glass into fiberglass insulation. Right. You know. And uh, Well, you get into that challenge with glass is, you know, when it's source color separated, there's value to it. When you have... Yeah. You know, a recycle center glass, a MRF glass, you know, it's colored. It's it's mixed colors. It's got other crap in it. And, yeah, it's good for fiberglass. It's good for shingles. But shy of that or aggregate, yeah, you know, there's not a lot of markets for that material. No. And no. then it becomes transportation dollars and where is it going to get to and who's going to use it. And, and at the end of the day, it's the most inert material you could put in a landfill. So if you're going to landfill something, landfill glass, it, it's silica, it's sand, it's, it's a few... Uh, minerals that aren't really going to hurt anything, you know. Right. I think the worst thing in it might be magnesium or something like that, you know. So it, it, it's not the worst thing. So I'm not focused on that. But that three through seven, I had a lot of thoughts, and I spent a lot of time, you know, in bed thinking about this kind of stuff, and I should have been sleeping. And so what do you do with the three through seven? So you're not going to be able to get it sorted out to the point where you've got a clean 45,000-pound semi-truck load of densified yogurt containers. It's just never going to happen. So what do we do with it? It goes to the landfill. You know, it takes up a lot of space inside there. But for me, that material is, at the end of the day, hydrocarbons. Mm-hmm. Oil is hydrocarbons, right? And so uh, plastic is an organized molecule of hundreds of thousand carbon molecules or atoms in a row, very linear, with uh, hydrogens off of each side. So they're, they're very organized hydrocarbons. So is methane. Methane is, you know, CH4, right? It's one carbon with four hydrogens on it. And so 
so the gasoline, the same thing. They're, they're, they're broken chains of these hydrocarbons. So when looking at it from a chemistry standpoint, my thought is, is why don't we turn all of this plastic that goes in the landfill into one last use, and that is to use it as energy. And so this pyrolysis does that. It heats it up. It's not burning it. So I want to be very clear about that. This is not, this is not a combustion of plastic. It's the heating up of plastic to 600 degrees Fahrenheit. And at 600 degrees, it goes through what's called torrefaction, which turns plastic into coal. A clean coal, I know that's kind of a buzzword. No one's really using that anymore because uh, other people have stolen that word. But the reason why it's clean is that those sulfurs and those um, chlorine atoms have popped off and been scrubbed out of the system already. So you've actually got a, a clean fuel. If you continue to heat that torrefied plastic, that coal material up, it'll go through what's called liquefaction and it'll turn into a liquid. It's a diesel material. Okay. It can't be put right into your truck. Uh, it can be sent off to a refinery if you got enough of it. Like I think a nice place for it would be over there where all the Canadian stuff comes in. If we can put something like that over there and, and take this plastic and turn it into energy. If you continue to heat it from that 800 degrees, which is liquefaction, I didn't mention that earlier, but 800 degrees is liquefaction. If you continue to heat it up to 1100 degrees, it goes through gasification and it turns it into methane. And then that methane material can be used in an internal combustion engine right then and there. And I've had this idea for years now, probably five or six years ago is when I started really thinking like this is, I think this might be the only end use for plastic. Right. You know? And so I went around and started pitching it with some local uh, investors, and one of them went to Michigan Tech, and he said, you know, I'll invest money in this, but I want you to go up to Michigan Tech because this, this person wants to spend his money in green energy only. He doesn't want to be the contributor to the carbon problems that we have. I go up to Michigan Tech and meet those folks up there, and lo and behold, they opened the doors of this room, and they had built the machine that was in my mind. Uh, apparently it was in their mind too. So they built a full-scale uh, pyrolysis machine up there and I thought it was fantastic and uh, they offered to classify our plastics from the mattress um, recycling that we do and I, we were talking about how we throw away about a thousand pounds a day mm -hmm. of uh, mattress material there we're working on a system for them to we can grind this material up and turn it into energy it'll give us all the power we need it'll have a return on investment of about three years at, at 10 cents a kilowatt hour um, we'll be putting electricity right back into the grid. It'll heat our building for us. I, I think it's. I think it has a, a really interesting future. Uh, the concept of of heating up plastic to the point where it turns back into energy. So spell that for our listeners. Pyrolysis. Mm -hmm. That is a tough one because I I always misspell it. But it's pyrolysis. <laughs> okay. So I know the the root word is pyro, um, but I got my iPhone with me and without taking too much time it is spelled p-y-r-o-l-y-s-i-s -S. okay p-y-r-o-l-y-s-i-s -S, pyrolysis and so you talked you know about the different evolutions in that process and you really kind of landed at gasification at the end and so is yeah. that is that the process that you want to see it it towards is and that's what makes the most sense in your research is the gasification so you know what um, it is at Michigan Tech. They think that that's the right direction to go because if you start building plants that are going to produce a huge amounts of, of coal material, well, there's less and less coal uh, facilities these days. Right. And then the problem with the liquefi li liquefying through li liquefaction um, is that that diesel has to get refined. So now you're having to ship it pretty far distance. Mm -hmm. And as you and I know, logistics, you're adding, footprint. you're adding footprint and logistics is all about time and fuel. And so whatever you can do that takes less time, well, not moving it anywhere is going to take the least amount of time and turning it into a fuel right there on site is going to have the least impact when it comes to logistics. So I think that, yeah, and, and maybe in, in my mind, there's, there's five or six or seven different sizes of these machines that do this. It's really a simple machine. Um, you can you can go on YouTube and, and check it out. But the you know the largest machine might power a city. Mm -hmm. a, a, a middle of the road machine might power a facility like a waste hauler or a landfill. Um, a smaller than that machine, you know, might be the, what I need as a manufacturer or you, you know companies that can take care of their own waste stream. I can see these things being in in their own buildings. Right down to the smallest one, which might be in your garage in the future. You might not have a, a waste hauling service 
um, to pick up your trash, you might go out to your garage and put it in something that looks like a washing machine. Flux capacitor. Yeah, there you go, the flux capacitor. So it was all back. It was all in the movie Back to the Future. It's all in the movie Back to the Future. Between Star Wars and Back to the Future, folks, you can learn everything. I don't know how far you're going to get on a banana peel in an aluminum <laughs> can, though. Is that what he used? That's what he used. Yep. Yeah, well, maybe a little bit of nitrogen in that banana. I don't know what the aluminum was doing. Uh, I don't know. Good, good television. That's what that was. Right, yep. So, Andy, tell the folks at home how to get in touch with you, and we'll wrap this thing up. So, you know, just go to the website, check out the website, and uh, I think that's the easiest way. Uh, I know your your audience is going to go way far beyond the Traverse City area, but if you have any uh, thoughts or ideas or want to send us an email, it's mybark.org, M-Y-B-A-R-C.org. So it's like mybayarearecyclingcharity.org. And then uh, on there, there's all sorts of places you can get on a newsletter or send an email or schedule a pickup or or order compostables or whatever whatever you're trying to do. All right, fantastic. Andy, thank you very much for taking the time with us today. I appreciate you very much. And remember, folks at home, protect your eyeballs by letting your earballs do all the work. Talk to you soon. See you, bye.